All right, so a formal welcome to Kabbalah and Coffee. It's great to see everybody here this morning. Um, so I want to speak about one of the greatest innovations, in my opinion, that Judaism brought to the table. And I want to contrast it, contrast it with um, a literary technique known as Greek tragedy. So what is Greek tragedy? Greek tragedy, yeah, is where you have a hero, and the hero will inevitably experience a downfall, experience something tragic. The hero was at the top of their game, and by the end of the story, you know that it's going to end terribly. This is, right, more or less, that's kind of Greek tragedy, yes? Okay. Why is it called Greek tragedy? I guess that was the, the genre that was prevalent then, and was, that, that's what they were all in on. But Greek tragedy finds itself in many different, uh, many different expressions. But Judaism brought something else to the table. The Torah, the Bible, brought another, another angle to the table. And what is that? It's this idea of not tragedy, but rather hope. It's this idea that we can go from nothing to something, from down and out to something incredible. So I'll, I'll share this. I've shared this many times before, but I feel like I want to, again, begin with this idea of a tale of three heroes. And the three heroes I'm speaking of are Noah, Abraham, and Moses, three biblical heroes that are very different. When Noah's confronted with God's plan to destroy the world, and God says to Noah, I'm going to destroy all of mankind and the entire earth, but I'll save you and your family and the animals that you collect, what does Noah say? Good morning. What does Noah say? Okay, I'll build an ark. No problem. I'm, I'm in. In other words, when confronted with the downfall of others, what does Noah say? All right, they should have been better. Like, they, they dropped the ball. Oh, well, I guess that's their fate. When Abraham, so that's Noah, and although Noah saves the world, in essence, he saved his family and rebuilt the world. And he saved the animals that he was told specifically specifically to, uh, to include. Now, when you talk about, that's Noah, then Abraham, next generation, or next, next major tale is Abraham. And who is Abraham? Abraham is someone who's not, who not only is concerned about himself, but concerned about others as well. And Abraham, when he's told about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, see, he immediately goes to bat for the people. He says, wait a second, God, if you are the ultimate justice of the universe, will the, will the ultimate Will the ultimate uh, facilitate, will the ultimate judge not perform justice? How can you act in an unjust fashion? It's not right. So to destroy all these cities with people that are certainly righteous, that would not be, that would not be okay, that would not be kosher. How, how could you do such a thing? God, so this is chutzpah, right? God is informing, just being nice to let Avram, Abraham know about his plan. And mid-damal, in the middle of nowhere, he turns into a lawyer. He's like, one second, this is not right. So unlike Noah who says... You're destroying the world? Okay, tell me how to save myself. Abraham says, one second, we got, we got to reconsider. What if there are righteous people? He famously asked God, what if there were five cities that were destroyed? What if there are 50 righteous people amongst the five cities? In other words, if there's a minion, a ten, a quorum of ten in each of the cities. And God says, but there aren't. What about 45? Nope, 40. 30? 20? 10? God says, no, not even one city has 10. All right? 
Abraham walks away. That's second generation. Abraham tries, but ultimately folds his cards and walks away from the table. Third generation, I don't mean literally sequentially generation, but third major episode is Moses, and this is today's session. Moses is confronted with God's plan to destroy the Jewish people after the sin of the golden calf. Understand how severe this sin was. They had just, God had just rescued them, rescued them. It's like too soft of a term. God had just liberated them, freed them, excavated them, extracted them from Egypt, a land in which they had been enslaved for hundreds of years. They were so enslaved at some point, the Bible tells us, they couldn't imagine, they couldn't conceive of freedom. They didn't listen to Moses. When Moses came to them and said, guys, we're out. God's going to take us out. I mean, before the 10th plague, initially. God says, we're on our way out. This is, Moses says, we're on our way out. This is going to happen. People can't even, can't even conceive of that concept. They were so entrenched in a slave mentality, they could not conceive of freedom. And then God freed them with 10 plagues and the splitting of the sea, and Revelation at Sunday. And then God says, Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God. Do not have any other gods. Do not create graven images. And what happens 40 days later? You know what happens. I know what happened. They're dancing the horror around the golden calf. Hava, nagila, hava. Right, they're dancing the horror around the golden calf. And you think to yourself, this is it. The ultimate betrayal. The ultimate betrayal. Someone, again, not, not the God as a person, but, but an entity a being, in this case, a divine entity and being, that did everything for you, that rescued you, that saved you, that loved you, that gave you his greatest gift, and what would you do? Create a golden calf. And what they say about the golden calf, this is the God that took us out of Egypt. They created the golden calf, and they said, this is the God that took us out, which makes no sense. Anyway, God says to Moses, that's it, I'm done. I'm done with these people, I'm going to destroy them and rebuild with you. So if, if, Mo, if Moses were Noah, you know what he would say? Sure. No problem. Right? Because that's exactly what Noah did. God said to Noah, I'm going to destroy the world, and you guys will be saved, and then we'll rebuild. And Noah said, sure. I just need a hammer, nails, and some wood. We're good to go. Let's build an ark. God says to Moses, starting again from you. And Moses says, no deal. No deal. No dice. You got to forgive. And God says, yeah, but it's really, it's really bad. And Moses says... Here's the deal, God. He puts down the ultimatum. He says, forgive the Jewish people. And if not, I'm quoting verbatim, word for word. Erase me. Please erase me. From your safer, from your book. That you've written. In other words, take me out of Torah. I want nothing to do with a book, but more than a book, with a movement, more than a movement, with a reality that doesn't allow for a redemption story. This is amazing. Moses says to God, not if there are righteous people, save the wicked on behalf of the righteous because there's still hope. No. Understanding that they sinned, it doesn't matter. Take my name out. Which is why there's one Torah portion post-Moses' birth that doesn't include his name because everything that a tzaddik utters has to come somewhat to fruition. And so the Torah portion of Torah portion of Tetzaveh, which is the Torah portion right before the story of the golden calf. So it's almost like God looked, no, we need Moses, no, and then came back, back around the circle right before we get up to that, that narrative again. The Torah portion before 
the, the sin of the golden calf does not have Moses' name in it. Moses puts down, plays the ultimate card. He says, God, that's it, take me out. And God says, good, good. Salachti kedvarech, I've forgiven them, as you requested. So that's the first thing for teshuva for individuals? Oh, so that's what I'm getting to today. That's what we call teshuva. Personal redemption. Personal redemption, return, whatever you want to call it, teshuva. It's called repentance. Ah, repentance, I don't know what repentance means. Return, redemption, coming back after all, coming back, you know, after you've had a terrible game, you're down to nothing, right? And it looks all down and out. And <laughs> Dan's V. Swanson and uh, Solaire. I mean, right? I mean, like, just stuck. Like, after it looks like there's no hope, like zero hope, there's no chance. Boom. You're back in the game. This could be the greatest thing Moses did. 100%. 100%. I was I absent? I don't know. I never really... No, it's, it's just about, it's about understanding, the, the, just contextualizing it. And by the way, you should know, where does, what's the verse where Moses says that? You can look it up. Look it up right now. It's Exodus 32, 32. 32 is lev, lamed bet, heart. The heart of the heart, 32, 32 of Exodus, heart is love, is the lo- love that Moses expresses for his people. He's not letting them go down. He's not saying... You guys messed up. You're on your own. Hey, you shouldn't have done it if you don't want to, if you don't want to you know, pay the price. He says, no, I'm, that's it. Like, this is it. This is a non-negotiable that there has to be a path for redemption. There has to be a path for someone who did the ultimate sin, so to speak, to come back. There has to be that path. So this is, in my opinion, one of the greatest innovations of Judaism, of Torah, you can say of Moses, whatever. And, and yes, and I don't, I'm not taking away the credit. Obviously, Moses is the one that, that's, that initiates this. Well, we understand that God was waiting for someone, uh, someone. If God opens up that path, then it's not the path of redemption. It's the path of, that it's just, it's not the same thing. The whole path of redemption is that you, cre- you pushed to find the path. You pushed to find an opening. You fought to come back. That has to be, self, that has to be self-generated. It can't be from above. If it's from above, then you're not really doing it, and then it's not real redemption. The redemption story has to come from the human being. So Moses is the one that opens up this channel, a channel certainly that God wanted from the beginning, but no one ever knocked down that door. Yeah? Why is Abraham, So I'm going to talk about Adam in a second. These are three individuals that were faced with the... The down, the, so Don is asking, why isn't Adam part of this conversation? So I'm, I'm, I'm responding. It's a good question, and we'll speak about Adam soon. But, but just on a, very, on a very basic level, it's because Adam was not confronted with um, God relaying news about someone else's downfall. So Noah was confronted with news about the world being destroyed, and he's safe. And Abraham is confronted with the news about Sodom and Gomorrah being destroyed, but he's fine. And Moses is confronted with the story, with the news of the Jewish people being destroyed, but he would be okay. In each of these three cases, they react differently. Noah says, I'm okay, that's good. Abraham says, I'm going to fight, but up to a point. Moses says, the ultimate fight. Mo- Moses is not ready, is not going to fold ever. But again, this is about people, people who were told about others' destruction. Adam sinned himself and paid his own price. But we're going to get to Adam in a second because it, it is relevant to this conversation. So, but, but step number one is understanding this daring 
idea, this biblical idea, Torah idea, Jewish idea, Moses' mosaic idea, whatever you want to call it, Moses' idea about the, the opportunity and the possibility of redemption. That even when you've done the ultimate, the, the worst of the worst, whatever it is, in this case, the worst of the worst, as far as the relationship between um, the Jew and God, nonetheless, there is still hope. Nonetheless, there is still a path of redemption, which we call teshuva. And this is, in my opinion, one of the most incredible gifts that Judaism has given to the world, or, or that Torah has given to the world, the idea, the notion that there is a way back, that the story doesn't have to end when things look bleak, right? Whereas Greek tragedy says, if it's good, it's going to get bad, right? Prepare for disappointment. The biblical story is, even when it looks bad, even when it looks broken beyond repair, there is still hope for redemption. So whereas, you know, the Greek tragedy starts up here and tanks, the Jewish story may start up here, tank, but come back. There's always that hope. And this, this plays into everything. I mean, it's the, psychologically and emotionally and sociologically and, and in science and, and art and, and literature, this has, this has dr dramatically affected the world. This is the concept behind Mashiach, the idea that no matter how bad things look in the world, we believe in an ultimate redemption. We believe in a better world and a better future for us all. This, this plays into so much of Jewish belief, this idea of, of return. But here's, and this is the next step. So that was step one. Step two. In order for this to happen, uh, certainly on an individual level though, in order for redemption, personal redemption to happen, there's one major ingredient that needs to be present. And that is acknowledgement of the problem. You can't get out of the problem if you don't acknowledge the problem. Or, more precisely, if you don't own it and take responsibility over it. In other words, if the idea of teshuva, the idea of personal redemption, only can happen when a person says... It was me, I did it, I take responsibility, I feel the weight of my actions, I feel the weight of the consequences, and I'm now inspired and stirred to change and to do better. If that ingredient is missing, then the rebound doesn't happen. Which is why, according to my, as Maimonides articulates, I don't want to say according to Maimonides, that sounds like there's a dispute, and Maimonides is the one opinion. Maimonides articulates the process of tshuva. Step one is owning what you did. Because without acknowledgement, without owning it, so then what am I, what am I, uh, what's the redemption story? I didn't do anything wrong. Which takes me back to Adam and Donna's question. What about Adam? We all know this story, right? Adam and Eve, Garden of Eden. God says to Adam after the sin, Ayaka, where are you? Because he was hiding, as if you can hide. We know today you can't even hide outside, right? There's... You heard about those spy planes in Baltimore recently, last few years? No? This is not like conspiracy. This is straight up. Baltimore, the city of Baltimore put up planes to surveil, to survey part of, this, part of the surveil. Surveil? Part of the city. Parts of the city. 24-7. They eventually got sued by the ACLU and uh, pulled them out of the sky. 
It's a whole, it's an ongoing court case. The point is like this. Adam tries to hide from God. And God says one famous word to Adam, Ayaka, where are you? And uh, you think, well, God, maybe God doesn't know where he is. But of course, God is asking, Adam, where are you, man? I gave you so much. You had so much potential. What happened? Where are you? So, Adam says, I'm hiding because I don't have any clothes on. I'm naked. God says, who told you you were naked? Who told you that's a problem? Did you perhaps, did you perchance, perchance, eat from the tree that I told you, the tree of knowledge of good and evil that I told you not to eat? And Adam says, the woman that you gave me, she gave me to eat. You see what's going on? He doesn't say yes. He says, the woman that you gave me, she gave me the forbidden fruit to eat. The ultimate deflection. What's, it would be funny if it weren't so, <laughs> it's our own experience of being confronted with, 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 with our shortcomings. What does he say? First of all, I ate from the tree. God, I don't know what you're talking about. She gave me the tree. In fact, it's her fault. And even more so, how did she get here in the first place? You made her. In fact, God, it's your fault. That's the ultimate deflection. Oh, it's my fault, God. Ho, ho. I think you need to look in the mirror. You're blaming me? I think you need to look in the mirror. Don't we do this all the time? So we talk about Adam. I don't think Adam even begins in the conversation, with all due respect. Adam doesn't, first of all, he's not confronted with, with others. With the, but when it comes to himself, what does he say? Adam says, me? I didn't do anything wrong. She did something wrong. And you did something wrong for making her and giving her to me. So I'm off the hook. In, in, in Jewish um, teachings, Adam is the ultimate kafoi tova, which means the ultimate ingrate of good. He was given the greatest gift. He was given a, a match, a, a helpmate, right? He's given a, a wife. And what does he do? He's ungrateful to her, about her. He's ungrateful to God for giving him this, this incredible blessing. No gratitude. Anyway, that's, that is Abraham. But I want to give you a, two more. Sir? Adam, sorry, that was Adam. Just, so, was the sin of the golden calf, were the Jews ungrateful at that point before they did the um, Ultimately, they owned it. And they owned it. And they, they, so the question is by the sin of the golden calf, were they ungrateful? Or were they, what precipitates the sin? You know, it's a complicated story. How did they do it? Why did they do it? It's a complicated story. We had a class, you were, Secrets of the Bible about what, was, what were they thinking? How could they have sinned? Um, it's, that's a, it's a longer analysis, but certainly they weren't thinking about God in the moment. If you're thinking about God in the moment, you're not acting. I was just wondering if there was a time There's a parallel. Yeah. You know, there's always parallels. Um, certainly they're not thinking about God in that moment. If you're thinking about God, it's like any act of, of, of um, let's say it nicely, disloyalty. Or, um, what's the word I'm looking for here? Um, lack of faithfulness. So you're not thinking of that person at that time. Obviously, if you're thinking of that person, you're not, you're not going to do something that's contrary to the whole entirety of that relationship. But what happens in the moment with Adam, in the Garden of Eden with God, is that God says, 
Ayaka, where are you? It's a direct question. What's going on? Adam, let me check in with you. What's going on? How's it going? Are you okay? And Adam, instead of saying, you know what? I've actually had a very bad day. I've actually had a lot of challenges today. And I had a moral failing. And I'm looking for a way back. Can you help me? Instead of that, Adam, his pride takes over. And he says, I'm fine. She's the problem. And you're the problem. Sound familiar? Right? We all do this. We all do this, right? We all deflect. We blame. Right? We rationalize. We point fingers. Someone once said, when you point a finger at someone else, you're pointing three fingers at yourself. Right? But we, we point fingers all the time. So I want to tell you now a tale of two kings. The first two Jewish kings in history, you've heard me, if you've been in my classes before, you've, there's a chance you've heard me share this idea. But if not, and even if you have, it's very, very important to remember these two stories. The story of King Saul, the first Jewish king in history, and King David, the second Jewish king in history. King Saul, Shaul HaMelech, and King David, David HaMelech. What happens? King Saul was anointed by the prophet Samuel. The people had wanted to appoint a king. All of the other nations had a king. People felt that a king would be beneficial. And God says to Samuel, all right, they want a king. Let's hook them up with a king. Samuel, the prophet, finds Saul. There's a divine, there's a, a story, a background story behind how he finds Saul. Saul is anointed king, and Saul is a very special person. He says, it says, He was head and shoulders, literally head and shoulders, above the people, above the rest. That expression, head and shoulders above the rest, is a biblical, it's a biblical phrase. So Saul was a very special person. He was righteous, he was learned, he was strong, he was everything. And he was victorious in battle. As, as we know in history, after the Jews conquered the land of Israel, there were, there were nations that continuously opposed the existence of the Jewish people, and there were many wars and battles that were fought, etc. What happens is that Saul is victorious, leads the Jewish people to, to, to victory in battle after battle. Well, at some point, the momentum is so strong that God tells Samuel, the prophet, to tell Saul, the king, it's time to take on the ultimate battle against Amalek. You know the nation Amalek? Amalek is always the thorn in the side of the Jewish people, the first nation to start up with the Jewish people after the Exodus. After the Exodus, who would start up with the Jewish people? They had just had so many miracles. The Exodus, 10 plagues, splitting the sea. Who would start up with the Jewish people? Amalek. Uh, in fact, it's interesting. Our sages liken Amalek to the Meshuggah. You know Meshuggah? To the... To the crazy person who jumps into a hot bath that's so hot that no one will jump in. Like, it's so hot that no one's going to step foot in it. But one guy goes in, and once the first guy goes in, then everyone goes in. So, like, the Jewish people were untouchable. Who's going to mess? Right? It's like the Braves bullpen. Like, who's going to start up? But no. Then, okay. Then you have one nation, Amalek, that says, that's it. We're going to show that they're not untouchable. We're going to, we're going to, now, we may, not be, we, may, we may not win again the battle against the Jewish people, but we're at least going to crack the veneer of untouchability. We're going to touch them. We're going to strike them. We're going to attack them. Even if we don't win, we're going to open up the door to others. So Amalek becomes the arch enemy of the Jewish people. The Torah says to wipe out Amalek, to go to battle against Amalek, and to finish them off. Okay, whatever that means. 
Saul was told to fight that ultimate battle. In his time, he was told, we're now ready. God says, through the prophet, now ready to fight the ultimate battle against Amalek and get rid of him. So, Saul leads the Jewish people into battle against Amalek. And, lo and behold, victorious. Great. The next morning, after the big battle is finished, God says to Samuel, you might want to check on the battlefield and see what's going on. So Samuel, Shmuel and Avi, Samuel the prophet, heads to the battlefield. And there he sees animals and some captives and that belong to Amalek, that came from Amalek. Now, the, 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 I'm not, this is going to be outside of the scope of the conversation. How, why would this be okay or whatever? But the, the terms of the commandment were to completely destroy Amalek, including the animals, etc., and all the people, no one, no, one, no, no captives taken. That was, that was the nature of the commandment. So Samuel comes to the battlefield and he says, I hear animals. What's going on? Oh, no, he says to Saul, he said something. He says to Saul, so how'd it go? Great. You did what you needed to do? Yes. You sure? Yes. What are the animals that I hear? Oh, those animals, we saved some animals to bring them as sacrifices of thanksgiving to God. We thought that would be the ultimate sacrifice. The ultimate, taking Amalek animals and bring them as a sacrifice to God, that would be like the ultimate transformation. And Samuel says, but, but you know that I said uh, not to. You know, God said to not spare the, any of the animals. And Saul says, the king says, well, yeah, but the people told me to. They were asking for some. <sighs> you see what's going on here? He starts blaming the people. And then he, say, he doubles down a few times saying, no, I did everything right. I did everything. The point is, long story short, at no point in time does he accept responsibility. At no point in time does he say, you know what? I goofed. I messed up. I should have done it differently. What can, I, what can I do now to fix it? He doesn't say that. He just doubles down and says, it either wasn't me or it wasn't so bad or it's okay or what's the big deal. At some point, the prophet says to, says to the king, Samuel, Shmuel Anavi, Samuel the prophet says to Saul, Shaul HaMelech, he says to him, does God want your sacrifices or does he want you to listen to him? Like, what does God want? He wants your offerings or he wants, like... You came up with a great strategy. I think God would want. Great. Shkoyach. Thank you for thinking. Who asked you to think? Right. God would want. God told you what he wants. You don't have to think of what he wants. God asked you what, to, God told you what to do. The point is like this. At no point in time in the narrative, it's a, it's a scary narrative when you read it. I wish I would have had it up over here to, to read you some verses. Um, at no point in the narrative does Saul just accept responsibility. And cop to it. At no point does he do it. Deflecting and blaming and shifting and squirming out of it. At no point. And finally, Samuel says, I think the conversation is over, and he goes to leave. Saul, the king, holds, grabs him, grabs his jacket or his coat or his cloak or whatever he's grabbing, and he rips the garment, he rips the sleeve, or rips part of the garment. And, and the prophet says to him very um, dramatically, just as you've ripped this garment, God has ripped away the monarchy from you. That's, that's it. And at that point, it was downhill for Saul. Ultimately, Saul dies not, not that long after in battle. And some say he took his own life in battle. That's a, long, that's a longer conversation. Um, and David becomes the king. Not his, David was not his son. David was actually his son-in-law. But David becomes the king.
So that's one story. I said it was a tale of two kings. I've told now the story of one king. Let's talk about the second king, who happens to be David. So David's the king. There's a famous story with David and Bathsheba. You know the story of David and Bathsheba? So one night, David is hanging out in the palace. And he sees, from the balcony, he sees a young woman on her balcony or on her roof, whatever it is. I'm glossing over some parts of the story here, you know, for to keep it family friendly. And basically, he says to himself, wow, she's a beautiful woman. And he asks his guards to call her to the palace. Okay, she comes to the palace. And uh, they schmooze and get to know each other a little bit better. Again, keeping this family friendly. And, uh, and after a few months, turns out that she is pregnant. The problem is she's married. So King David, and where is the husband? The husband is on the battlefield. He's a soldier in King David's army. So King David quickly thinks on his feet and he says, all right, we can still salvage this somehow. I mean, obviously, if there's a baby born, if the wife is pregnant and gives birth to a baby while the husband was away, you with me on what the problem is? The math is some, some, someone's going to be suspicious at some point, right? I mean, odds are. So King David says, all right, I got a plan here. He calls, he sends a message to the, to the generals, send back the husband. Sends back the husband, and he orders the husband, or, or he gives the orders, you know, by royal decree, you're being given, um, what do they call it when you get a break from, from leave? You're given a leave, right? R&R. What is that, what is that, what is that? It's called R&R. R&R, yeah, R&R. <laughs> exactly, R&R. And uh, you're being ordered by the king to, to have a little vacation. Go home. Okay. So, um, so he comes home from the battlefield. But instead of going home to his, to his wife, because King David, okay, you know that you get this strategy here. The guy would go home to his wife, be with her. She would, get, she would be pregnant and he wouldn't know it yet and she would give birth to a baby. They'd think, he would think the baby was a little premature and that's it. Everyone's happy and, and no one will ever know. Well, the problem is this guy, this soldier from the army, the husband of Sheva, he decides he's not going home. I mean, how could he go home while there's a battle, while his brothers are on the battlefield? Then he can just go home and pretend like nothing's happening, like he's not in the middle of a war. So he goes and he says, look, the king called me. I'm going to go post up in the, in the palace. The king wants me home. I'll be home, but not home home. I'll be here at, at headquarters at, with the commander in chief. The king's like, bro, I, <laughs> don't do this to me. Like, hello. So he, he directly orders him, go home. And this man says, I cannot go home. He articulates to the king, I cannot go home while my brothers are doing battle in the battlefield. King David says, I get it, I understand, no problem. He writes a letter, seals it, gives it to him, and he says, you can go back now to the battlefield to be with your brothers. Take the sealed letter, give it to the general, the commanding officer. He does so, he goes back to the battlefield, 
he gives the general, the commanding officer, whoever it was, the letter. That fellow reads the letter. The letter says, place this fellow that gave you the letter at the front lines. He places the front lines, and he dies in battle. Now that he's dead, King David can marry Bathsheba, and life goes on happily ever after. How do you guys feel about this story? He committed two capital offenses. <laughs> <laughs> Donna's not happy about this story. Two capital offenses, right? Okay. Two out of three. Two out of three, right. <laughs> Adultery and murder, and uh, the only thing that's left is idolatry. Okay, so you should know that after this episode, now, there are justifications that are given as far as the husband goes, he, he, he um, uh, defied the orders of the king, so that's a, that's a, punishment, that's a capital offense. But even with the, his relationship with Bathsheba, there are justifications that are given, but it, that's not the point. The point is, it seems pretty, pretty not cool what happened, right? So Natan Hanavi, Nathan the prophet, who actually made a, uh, a cameo appearance, a big appearance in this past, yesterday's Haftorah, the prophet Natan, Nathan, Nassan, goes over to David and says, David, I have a question for you. I have a, qu a, theory, a question I need, because David was a scholar and a judge also. David, I need, your, I need your guidance here. There was a guy, a poor man, had nothing but one sheep, one little sheep or a goat, whatever it was, one animal. And his neighbor had, every, rich fellow had everything. The neighbor decided one day that he's hungry. But instead of going after, instead of choosing one of his many, many, many animals, he says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go and go into my neighbor's yard and pick his animal and secretly take that animal, shecht it, slaughter it, and eat it, leaving that guy without any animal. What should be done? What do you think? David says, that man is terrible, horrible. He should be put to death. About the rich guy who stole. Nathan Anavi says, and you know who that guy is? That guy is you. That's what he says to him. The ultimate setup and the ultimate delivery. That is you. You know what the next words out of King David's mouth were? The next words. Two words. That would change history. Two words. Chatasi Lahashem. I have sinned unto God. That's what he says. I have sinned. I messed up. He doesn't say, well, it was his fault, her fault, their fault. My. He doesn't sh point fingers, shift the blame. He doesn't excuse himself, justify himself. He doesn't hem and ha and duck and dodge. He says two words, Chatasi Hashem, I have sinned. And for the rest of his life, he engaged in prayer and fasting and supplication and tshuva. And he writes about this in Psalms that he, chatosi negdi samid, my sin is before me constantly. He says that in Psalms. Chatosi negdi samid, my sin is forever in front of me. King David is King David not because he never, not because he never messed up. It's because when he messed up, he owned it. Now you could say, one second, isn't that so big of a mess up that he should have been totally canceled? 
That's not my decision. You know, we're playing armchair quarterback. We're, there's a lot of conversation about this, and that's, that's a bigger discussion. But my point is the reaction, a tale of two kings. Saul is confronted with his, with his shortcomings and misdeeds, and what does Saul say? They told me, he told me, she told me, a whole story, never accepting responsibility. Not once. Look at the narrative. Never once accepting responsibility. And David, what can I do to fix this? I messed up. Which, remind, which tells us in black and white that what is the key to personal redemption? The key step number one is acknowledging it. If you don't acknowledge it, you can't fix it. If you don't, and acknowledge doesn't mean I acknowledge that something was done wrong by someone else. That's not acknowledgement. Acknowledgement means it's, my, it's, it's mine. You own it. I did it. I own it. Now I need to fix it. Without that acknowledgement, without owning it, you can't fix it. And if you can't fix it, you can't grow from it. You can't reconnect. So this is really, so that's maybe the second point. Third point, which I'm going to say very briefly, because it's a theme we've spoken about many times, and that is the whole purpose of sin is to grow from the experience. The whole purpose is to become stronger and more connected and more spiritual. In other words, the whole purpose of the downfall is the rebound. So, what's, what's ha so what happens when we deflect? What happens when we don't own it? What happens is we experience the downfall, but don't acknowledge the downfall, so they never get picked back up. So it's like, you wasted a good crisis. You understand what I'm saying, right? You wasted a good crisis. Here you're in a perfect position to really feel bad, to really feel contrite, and to get things back together again in a much greater way than before. And what happened? You dropped the ball. The whole point why God created the possibility of sin set you up even. You say, I was set up. The whole reason was for that, for the recovery, for that rebound. And what happened? It wasn't my fault. Not my fault. Then there's nothing to rebound from. So now you wasted. You wasted a good down. It's like the trampoline. You, you, like, you push down and, and that's it. That, oh, and you stay right there. It's like, wait a second. You got leverage. It's like a slingshot. You pull it back. Yeah. All right. So unsatisfying. You went down, might as well get back up. That's the whole point of going down. In Kabbalah, we have a phrase for this. It's called Yurida Lutzarech Aliyah. A descent for the purpose of, for the sake of the ascent. A descent and just to stay down there, that's a waste. It's a waste. Who does that? Why, why do that to yourself? Why would we do that to ourselves? Just to go down and never get back up. But to get back up, you have to acknowledge that you're down. Because if you tell yourself when you're down that you're up, so guess what? You're staying right there. Are you with me on this? If I'm down and I say, I'm fine. It's their fault. I'm f I didn't do anything wrong. So guess what? You're down and you're staying down. If you acknowledge it, at least you can climb back up and rebound with a greater force and intensity than before. That's the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal is to go higher than before. But if we, if we pretend and we, and we deflect and we diffuse and we, and we point fingers and blame and shift and, and dodge and duck... Then, then we've wasted, we've wasted a crisis. We've wasted, I'm sure this makes sense, yeah. I feel that could be another of Judaism's gifts to the world because nowadays it's, a, it's prevalent. If you say to someone, you know, if you express to someone that that person has done something that's hurt you or something like that, nowadays it's prevalent for that person you're expressing your feelings to say, I'm sorry you feel that way. Yeah. <laughs> Don, let me, let, me, let me share that. I love that, right? I mean, you know what I mean by love that? So Don is saying 
that it's, it's, it's a maddening, I'm just adding some words, it's a maddening reality in today's day and age, and I, I would say it's probably not only today's day and age, where you tell someone, hey, you know, you hurt me, you wronged me, etc., and they'll say, I'm sorry you feel that way, right? I'm sorry you feel that way. In other words, who's the problem? Your, pro- your problem for feeling that way. I don't do anything wrong, but I, I apologize if you felt that I somehow harmed you, which, by the way, is a standard line of apology nowadays, in, in press conferences and other forms of personal conversation, it's like, I'm sorry, I didn't intend, I'm sorry if anyone construed it as blah, 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 and I'm, just not, a, I'm not thinking of anyone specifically, this is just a general uh, mode, yeah. You know about Marjorie Ingle? She's a writer, she's written children's books. She has a website about apologies. How to do it right. How to do it right, good apologies, bad apologies. And every year, you know, around the high holidays, Interesting. She always gets a lot of press because she makes that call. Right? Interesting. Marjorie Engel? Marjorie Engel has a website about mm-hmm. apologies. I think it's called I'm Sorry. I'm Sorry. Nice. All right. Yeah, it's powerful. The, the, the problem is that in that type of communication, the message is I don't think I did anything wrong but I recognize that you think I did something wrong. I'm sorry that you feel that, but I'm still not going to own it. But it makes you doubly hurt. It hurts you again, right. Because now you feel, it's the, there's a word for it. What's it called? It's, um, it's like gasla- almost like gaslighting, right? It's like gaslighting. It's like there's something wrong with you for being so sensitive or for thinking that because that was not at all my intention. Oh, my gosh. You thought that's what I meant. I was just innocently blah, 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 right? I mean, okay. Anyway, long story short, we live... I would say that from the beginning, from the first human being, Adam, we've had this problem of not owning it, of deflecting, of blaming, of shifting, of, of squirming our way out. Because who wants to feel, who wants to look inward and say, you know what? I messed up. Who wants to do that? No one wants to do that. It's so much more comfortable to say, it's not me. So the book that we're studying in Kabbalah and Coffee is called Overcoming Folly. And I, so number one, I love this text, one of my favorite Kabbalistic texts, mystical texts, Hasidic texts to study. That's number one. Number two, the, the, the purpose of this, of this work is to explore various forms of silly things that we tell ourselves <laughs> to get us into trouble. Like stuff that when we look back later, we say, we like smack our heads, you know, in a in a way of saying, like, what was I thinking? How could I have done that? What was I thinking? So these are things that we get ourselves into trouble with because we're just not thinking correctly. So one of the follies, and the one that we're going to discuss now as we start Mimer Yud Gimel, Discourse 13, is the folly of self-justification. So let's jump in. I'm going to pull it up on the screen. Make sure that everybody here has a copy. Let's get Marnin hooked up. Thank you so much. Yeah, if you could send me the link also. Yeah, yeah, I would love to see that. Yes. Oh, yeah, she's, oh, nice. Nice. By the way, I, yeah. I had a quick question. Sure. So, at least when it pertains to feelings, right? So, if someone says something to you, I mean, because it sounds like a lot of this stuff is about accountability and taking responsibility for things, right? But in the realm of feelings exclusively, where do you draw a line for like emotional accountability? So for example, if she turned around right now and said something to me off the wall, like I don't know, you're, you're a very fat man, right? I have a choice on how I can feel about that. Right. So like when it comes to people and um, 
you know, saying things to you, like how, how do you differentiate between emotional accountability and me, you know, choosing my emotion as opposed to a legit wrong that's been done? Right. Okay, excellent question. And remind me your first name? Darren. Darren. Darren's asking a great question. How do we differentiate when somebody, I'm just, maybe I'm just going to change the wording a little bit. If if a person authentically believes that they didn't harm someone, that they may have just been offended and took offense at something that was meant innocently. Is that kind of the question? So like, how do we, like, what if I, I don't feel I actually offended the other, but they got emotionally offended, but that's more on them, their way of understanding it than what I did. So, I mean, it's a good question. I, yeah, it's a really good question. How, how, do we, how do we draw that line? I would say, that one, one way of thinking of it, one way to look at it, I'm not saying this is the only way to look at it, but one way to look at it would be, if someone gets hurt, even if I could say that they're being overly sensitive or whatever, I st it's still worthwhile for me to look within and ask myself the question, how can I be better and more sensitive, understanding that some people may be you know, super sensitive about something, how can I be you know, more aware of that and, 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 and project differently moving forward. Which means, you know, you know, the question is, is there a line, is there a, li is there a limit where that gets drawn? And I under it's a really good question that you're asking. Um, I don't know, I, but I think there's still value in, in, in owning it. Does that make sense? Does anybody else want to jump yeah. in on this? No, I just want to ask a question, yeah. kind of the flip side of what he just said, yeah. which is, so it's so hard for us to self-identify our, our issues and um, in the original uh, big book instead of saying list all your character defects it says list all your resentments and every time you have a resentment you have a role in it and I just wonder how Judaism looks at that because that kind of everyone knows when they're angry at somebody right but to then turn it around and say well I have a role in this and that therefore I need to make an amend. Interesting. That's exactly the opposite of what our culture is doing now. Every time someone has an anger, they point a finger at the other person and says, you need to change. Rabbi. Yeah, hold on, let me just share what Ed said and then Joy, I'll get to you in a second. So Ed said that the flip side of that, which is very interesting is, is the idea of acknowledging when one is feeling resentment, when one is the, the acknowledging resentment and recognizing the role that I that 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 the one who feels resentment has in that resentment, so it's like internalizing. Like it's not blaming. That you have to make an amend if you're carrying a resentment. If you're carrying a resentment, it's a marker that you have to make an amend. So it's like instead of blaming the other one, you hurt me. It's like what role do I have in that? Is that kind of like? That's exactly. You start by listing your resentments, and then the hard part is figuring out what your role is. In. What your role is in. Interesting, and interesting, interesting. looks at things that way as well. Like, if you're carrying a resentment... You and how it, would that not be blaming the victim? That the, the, There's a differentiation there? Or? Right. I mean, yeah. think about the most extreme examples where you see, you know, family members where perhaps someone had been killed within the family and they forgive the other person. Right. You know, which is very rare, but you do see examples of right. doing that. Yeah, that's, so what's interesting is, and I, I have to think about this, I don't know that I can have a, a quick reaction on this, I, I'm, it's, I'm, I'm internalizing this idea, um, is the extent to which that type of owning is, is in essence being put both ways. Owning when you do something, owning when something happens, but, but, but on some level owning that experience. I don't know, I'm, I'm, I'm working through it. Joy, jump in. 
So I'm in the same genre as Ed is because in the English, the term is take offense. So God forbid that someone should say something intentionally mean and hateful to me, but I cannot be offended unless I choose to be offended. And so I, I get what Ed's saying. And, and there are circumstances where it is hurtful and it is unjustified. And God forbid, I would have been the person that generated the comment. And yes, I should apologize. But again, in light of modern culture, a lot of what gets said, I have to take the offense. You don't have the power to offend me, you and you alone. Right. And so I would just make that point. Interesting. And, you know, as you say that, I think of the story of Joseph, who is sold by his brothers. The ultimate, the ultimate victim, right? Sold by his brothers as a slave. Um, you know, a slave in Egypt, imprisoned for a wrongful, you know, wrongfully convicted of a crime he didn't commit, thrown in a dungeon, ultimately climbs his way out of it with ingenuity and good luck and, and divine blessing. But when confronting his brothers years later, he says to them, I hold no grudge against you. I bear no anger against you. In fact, you didn't sell me as a slave to Egypt. God sent me here on a mission. I'm not, right, I'm, I'm not a, you didn't sell me, God sent me. And he takes away the power from the offender. He takes away the power. He's like, I'm not going to give you the power that you, I'm not going to grant you power over me that you victimized me. I'm going to take the power and, and give it to God and say, God sent me here. And so I am a messenger. I'm, an, I'm a messenger from God to be in this pit, in this dungeon, right? But I view myself not as a victim, but as a messenger of light. And, and he lives, he lives that narrative. That's his narrative. And he actually lives that narrative. And he brings light into that place and wherever he goes. So, right, that's the counter which to fill out the conversation, I think, is a very important point. And the question is how to balance that. But I would say this. I would say that both, now that I'm thinking about it, and I, I just want to like, preface this by saying, I don't think I have any final thoughts on this, because this is all, I think, a very, very powerful conversation, at least for me, um, is I think maybe it's true on both sides. right? Maybe for Joseph, the healthiest thing for Joseph is to not empower, is to not give power to the abuser. It's to take that power for himself, right? But the brothers, should they therefore say, well, we're off the hook? Would that be okay for them to say, well, then I guess we didn't do anything wrong. I guess we were just facilitators of the divine plan, even though we didn't know about it. Like, we had no idea what was going to happen. Turns out we were just a tool in God's master plan. So I guess we're good, right? I think they, on their end, would have to live the rest of their life owning what they did, Whereas Joseph would also, on a healthy level, should own, I don't know, own, but should, should be empowered on his, on his end, etc. Now, can you tell someone who's been victimized, you know, hey, you know, pick your chin up, you know, don't be victimized because, you know, what? I don't know if anyone can tell you that. I don't know if anyone can tell anyone else that. It's almost like something that a person has to work through themselves, to, to, in, in that process, that maybe that's where that inner work happens, where you kind of think about, you know, the, the bigger picture. This is a, yeah, this is, um, I think this is a very important conversation. So it sounds like the message in between the messages, we should all be like David and strive for self-accountability, or we mess up in these things and, and turn within it. Yeah, I think the accountability piece is, is, is what it comes down to. 
David and accountability and, and really again on, you know, certainly on the side of the one who, who did the wrong and did the hurt. That is the direct, uh, the, the, the direct message over here. All right, good. Thank you guys for the conversation. Very, uh, very powerful. All right, Discourse 13. Let's begin inside. Oh, let me pull it up on the screen so everyone's on the same page here. Um, hold on. Let me get this ready. Um, and by the way, this Discourse, thir this Discourse 13 is absolutely magical. And you'll see what I... I mean, this whole text is magical, and this, this discourse is really, really powerful. You'll, you'll see what I mean in a moment. Okay, let's begin inside. Page 190, Discourse 13, and we, we begin almost like a new topic within our larger uh, topic of, of, of things that we do to get ourselves in trouble. This is like a new, or poor decisions, or whatever it is. Discourse 13, Chapter 1. Okay. Another ill evil, ill evil, in the Hebrew it's ra'achola, yeah, an ill evil, is the fact that man, again, it's not gender specific, that the human being justifies himself regarding the sin he performed. So that's a, that's a problem. So the sin is one, the, the mistake is problem number one. But maybe the bigger mistake is when a person says, not my fault, right, the justification. Here we go. It is characteristic of man that no matter what is involved, whether good or bad, a matter of opinion, a matter of opinions, character and conduct, a concern between man and God or something between man and his fellow or something of purely personal nature, no matter what it is, it's good, it's not good, it's opinion, it's character, it's inner character, it's action, it's between me and God, between me and another, between me and myself. Here's the rule. If it is good, he attributes it to himself. And if it is unfavorable, someone else is invariably responsible. It's the way it is. If it's good, look what I did. Aren't I great? And if it's bad, oh, point the finger at someone else. It's interesting because this sounds like it opens it up to both sides. It's interesting. This is like, this is a little bit more general. The cause... Oh, oh, and, and in case you were waiting for like a, a protracted, like a very like long build up to the main idea, right here, the cause, this is it, is simply natural self-love that so effectively conceals his every misdeed that not only is he blissfully unaware that he himself is culpable, he even regards himself as virtuous. What is the cause? Why is it that when something goes well, we pat ourselves on the back and when something blows up, we point fingers at the other. The reason is because of what's called in Kabbalah, avat atzmo, self-love. Natural self-love, inherent, organic, essential, um, intrinsic, natural self-love that absolutely covers over all problems. Shemachas al-pishe atzma, it covers over all blemishes within oneself. Now, this is... This is taken, this concept is taken from, I believe, Proverbs and King, da King Solomon, where King Solomon writes something to the effect of, love conceals all blemishes. The ultimate blemish concealer 
is love. So whether this is in a relationship with another person, when you're in love, you won't notice the flaws initially because you have that, that strong, you know, that, that, that intense love. So like you just don't notice that stuff. Or whether it's talking about in a case of self-love, which is, more, which is more, more appropriate to our conversation here, that love covers overall blemishes. Because of my natural self-love for myself, self-love for myself, which is redundant, right? I won't notice or I'll downplay anything that makes me feel uncomfortable or that challenges that narrative. I love myself. I want to see myself as a good person, as a flawless being. And therefore, anything that challenges that narrative needs to be somehow pushed out, pushed away and, and reframed to keep my narrative, my self-love intact. Right? This is nothing. This is not even academic thing. This is like, oh, yeah, speaking about me, right? It's like this is all of us. All of us live this reality, right? We point fingers when something goes wrong. We take the credit when something goes right. And why? Natural self-love. But look at that line. Look at that last piece. Not only is he blissfully unaware that he himself is culpable. And by the way, it sounds like it's not even malicious. Because of the self-love, it, 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 like, it disrupts the full force of the negative from even being consciously sensed initially unless we do the work to open ourselves up to that reality. But the initial reaction is it's like um, shooting photos with like a, like a filter, like a glow filter. All the pictures that you're capturing I don't know if my analogy is good, but work with me here. It's like automatically have this glow, this shine to them. It's like anything that I do or anything, anything that's about me automatically has a shine to it. So he's, not, he's, he's blissfully unaware that he himself is culpable. But moreover, he even regards himself as virtuous. I did something wrong. No, 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 no. I did everything right. That's, that's like the next level. Like I, not only am I not wrong, I'm virtuous. All right, now let's get, in, let's get inside. And I, I, you know, for the life of me, I'm not sure about the translation here. I think, I don't think it's correct. I'm, I really don't think it's correct. And um, I know my name might be on page eight of the credits here for one of the editors, uh, but I, which it is, but I, I don't know, I, I don't believe this is correct. So he says here, it is indisputable, you see what I mean, it is indisputable, he says, that immaturity is the cause of shortcomings and that the environment wields a powerful influence for misdeed. I don't think it's immaturity. It's, in the Hebrew, it's yaldus. Even though it's true that much yaldus has caused the problem. What's yaldus? Immaturity. That's what he's saying. That's the translation, immaturity. I think it means the upbringing that we had as a child. In other words, the environment, the, the, the education, the upbringing. In other words, what are the two things that everyone blames or that we point our fingers to? The parents and the, the peer pressure, right? It's that, and that's, I, I'm pretty sure, like if I had a, I can't be 100% sure, but my, every part of my being tells me that it's not immaturity, because immaturity is not pointing a finger. How's immaturity? Immaturity is not. Immaturity is acknowledging that I'm immature. That's not pointing a finger. Pointing a finger is, it's my upbringing, and it's my environment. Those. That's the finger. I don't know why my upbringing is that way. It could be that way. Whatever. Right. It's it's the past, 
and the environment. So that's every part of my, of my understanding points me to a different translation here. So I'm going to read it again from a different, from, with, with my translation. It is indisputable. In other words, it's true, 100% true, that our upbringing is the cause of shortcomings that the, and that the environment wields a powerful influence for misdeed. In other words, it's true that there are other factors in our, in other words, he's acknowledging, he's not saying that nothing ever goes into, into shaping who we are and our decisions and our deeds. He's, he's, of course, it's obvious, it's true that a lot is caused by how we were raised and where we were raised and our family and our environment and the school and the education. A lot of that has, has an influence. And it's true that the environment that we live in and our friends and the, social, the society that we live in, certainly all of that wields a powerful influence. That is without dispute. And when they combine, the effects are even worse. In other words, combine uh, challenging upbringing with a challenging environment now, oi, perfect storm. So what he sounds like he's acknowledging the fingers, the finger pointing. But in truth, he says, one is responsible himself for choosing evil company and a negative environment. In other words, I... Maybe that's why they translate it differently, because he's not going back to the parents, because that you can't have chosen. But he says, at least in the present, the present influence of a negative environment, he says, at the end of the day, one is responsible for choosing evil company and a negative environment. In other words, if a person recognizes that it's their negative environment that's at least part, uh, partially to blame or in play, at play in, 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 in leading a person on the path that they're in, which is not so ideal, well, then... Take responsibility and change, which may sound easier than, than it is, but at least make an effort toward that. At the very least, oh, okay, so he, he does, okay. So number one, even though there are others to blame, you still have the choice right now, who am I hanging out with? Where am I living? What am I, where am I living? Maybe a little bit harder, but who am I hanging out with? What type of environment am I putting myself in? At the very least, even if we don't change that, in other words, even if we're not ready to or we're not capable of changing that, at the very least, you should not cast the full blame on someone else. At least acknowledge some responsibility and certainly not claim unsullied virtue for himself and certainly not say that I'm perfect and it's just everyone else that's causing the problems. But, he says, but this is human nature. His high regard for himself harms him in this manner. In other words, that ego is what brings about a negative in this case. The ego harms the person in this manner by not allowing for, as Darren said, accountability. That's a good word. For not allowing for accountability. <sighs> Makes sense. This is, all, this is all like real. It's all very, it's not like, not philosophical. It's all like, it's, it's like a very real conversation. Rabbi, I have yeah. a question. Yes. So in Vayikra 1918, that we say in the morning prayers every morning, um, thou shalt love thy fellow as thyself, would that commandment not incorporate both of these ideas? On the one hand, I don't accede power to those who should not have that level of power. But on the other hand, I take accountability for my actions because if it's, if the situation is in reverse, I'm the person that maybe would have reason to be offended. I act toward those who offended me as, in other words, I give them a break because 
if I should say something or do something that offends them, I want that same level of charity back toward me. Or, yes, exactly. Or in other words, loving your fellow as yourself means that when the other does something wrong, you view it with the same lens of self-love, that yeah. same yeah. filter yeah. of goodness and generosity of That's judgment. Exactly. You view the other with the same generosity of judgment that you view yourself organically. But with the other, it takes work. It takes a commandment. It takes the morning prayers. The morning, one of the most powerful meditations every morning before we start the morning prayers. I accept. Behold, I hereby accept upon myself mitzvah asay, the positive commandment, shell of v'yahavta lereacha kamocha, love my fellow, love your fellows yourself. That is that we declare it verbally. And before we pray, whatever we need, we acknowledge and we verbalize that we are going to grant that to others. And when, we're, when, we, when we grant that to others, God grants what we, what we need. That's, that's our belief, what we do it in front of, before we, we pray. But that idea of loving your fellows yourself, yeah, it's exactly the way Kabbalah explains it, is that just like you view yourself with that judgment and generosity, apply that to the other as well to view them with a little bit more generosity. The truth is, it really should work the, the opposite way. When it comes to the other, you should always be generous in judgment. When it comes to oneself... We should be a little bit more honest and a little bit more, more, um, more, uh, more accountable, more taking responsibility for ourselves, right? So it really should work the opposite, but in truth, we end up flipping it for ourselves. We didn't do anything wrong. And the other, every little thing, oh, terrible, how could they, right? So that's good. So now, the, in this last paragraph on this page, he adds in a little bit of a twist. Not a twist, but he adds in like another layer to this. He says, even someone who has rebounded from a negative and is in a better place, objectively in a better place, still might harbor justifications and excuses, even as they're in a better place. Understand this. It's, we're not saying that if you, if you justify and point fingers and blame and shift, you'll never get better. That might be true. But even if you got better, even if you did improve, you still might harbor a sense of, yeah, but it was still someone else's fault. And he says that still takes away from the experience. That's what he says here. It is not unknown for penitents to have this fault. In other words, even people that came back, they still might have this fault. Though they are bitterly remorseful for the original misdeed, speech or thought, and cry bitterly over it, so they have done the work, Yet they find some excuse for themselves and blame it on a number of reasons. Which he said, what he's trying to say is it's not, it's not binary. It's not either or. Either you accept responsibility and you improve or you deflect and you stay where you are. He's like, no, it could be a mixture of both. Where you accept responsibility to a certain extent and you fix things to a certain extent. But to another extent, you still harbor a sense of, yeah, but you know what? They also played a role in this. So we're still pointing fingers. One may feel, oh, and, and, and look at this. Oof, this is powerful now. Yeah, every line here is like, is like a universe of, 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 of wisdom. It's so, I'm sure you can tell by now I'm excited about this, but this is like, it's so rich. It's so beautiful. Look what he says here. What, what are these number of reasons? A person may point to themselves, but still give an excuse. One may feel, this is one, two, three, four lines, the end of the fourth line from that last paragraph on 190. One may feel that it is due to his passionate nature. In other words, he takes responsibility, but he blames himself for being too passionate or too, 
you know, too passionate, and that's what got him into trouble. So he, he owns it, but he also he's also kind of deflecting a little bit, like if I only didn't have such a big temper, it wouldn't have been a problem in the first place. You see what's going on here? It's like it was so naturally strong, a person believes, that he was unable to restrain his temper or his deeds, speech or thought from doing, saying or thinking something forbidden. So here's the, here's the deflection, even though it's not a de yeah. it sounds like it's not a deflection, but he's saying it's still a form of, it's a subtle form of shift. It's saying, I did it, I'm wrong, I need to, I need to change my, I need to, I need to fix it. Uh, but what are you going to do? Like, I have, this, I have this thing inside. Hold on. That itself is, is an opening for deflection. Even though it sounds like, what deflection? I'm owning that I'm too, that I'm too passionate or that, I'm too, that my temper is too big. No, 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 no. It's, it's still putting it on something. Let's continue. And, ex and here explains why it's still a deflection. Though he realized that it was forbidden and it would destroy his soul and possibly even harm him physically. Destroy his soul is, you know, not literally, but it means, you know, spiritually mess him up and possibly even harm him physically. But due to his great passion, he could not control himself. That's what he tells himself. He tells himself that I knew it was wrong. And I know it's going to harm myself or others or myself and others. I know it's not good for me. I know it's not good for me spiritually. I know it's not good for me physically. I know it's not good for the other. I know, I know, I know. But I couldn't hold myself back. It was too strong. It was too powerful. I couldn't hold myself back. That's one sort of. So he owns it and he'll grow from it and hopefully he'll improve it. But he's still blaming his big passion inside. Or at times. Or at times. Second to last line on one ID. He might find another person to blame. Claiming that a temper led him off the path of righteousness, while of his own accord he would not have done such a thing. Let me see what the Hebrew is on that. Oh, I'm so, why doesn't it translate it like that? No, no, no. He might find another person blame claiming that a temper, a temper? No, a, oh, a tempter. I read that wrong. A tempter led him off the path of righteousness. Yeah, he is blaming someone else. He blames someone else and says, look, who tell so-and-so so -and -so convinced me and pulled me off that path. So I, I did it. I acknowledge it. I need to not do that again. But who's the one that convinced me it was that person? But, I'm, but I own it. But that person convinced me to do it. There's still a subtle, subtle shift. One second. Marnina and then Donna. Yeah. Devil made me do it. Right. Exactly. Everybody does it, right? Everybody does it, yeah. Everybody does it. They made me do it, you know. So again, the, the, what I, the, to me, the powerful thing about this last paragraph is the previous paragraphs, it sounded like he was talking about somebody who is completely not acknowledging, completely shifting, and therefore not going to grow at all from, from, from the experience. What he's saying now is even someone who did grow from the experience, even someone who has improved their ways, right, even someone who has gotten to a better place, still might in their heart of hearts be blaming someone else or something else, even if it's internal, but some sort of, some sort of shift. Let's continue 192. Whew. Wow. Okay. 192. This is all a self-delusion. All. What does all mean? Whether it stops us from any growth or whether we've already grown, but it's still nagging at us somewhere inside that it's not fully our fault. All of this 
whichever permutation, whichever form it takes, either gross or subtle, is a self-delusion. Growing from, emanating from, self-love. And that is the only reason that he justifies himself. The only reason for the justification. Why not just own it fully and say, I could have controlled myself, but I failed. Why say, there's a force within me that I couldn't control? Which is a little different, even though it may have sounded the same as I said it now. But it's a little different to say, like, I have this thing inside of me that versus, you know, I dropped the ball on this. It's a different thing. Or, you know, I have to fix it. I'm not going to listen to that person again, but they're the one that, 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 that pushed me down that path. But I'm going to now resist it, but they pushed me down that path. All of this is a self-delusion. I'm just repeating this for a sentence. Growing from self-love, and that is the only reason to justify The only reason for the justification is the ego and the self-love that cannot allow for the mirror of fault to be placed in front of one's own, own, own image. It, it does not allow for one, I mean, it, it does not want to allow for that, for that, for that fault to, to be acknowledged. For the excuse, and look what he says here, he hones in on that, one of the things that he mentioned in the last paragraph, when a person says, you know, man, I've got such a huge passion, I have such a huge yates or horror inside of me, you know, it got the better of me. Like, I couldn't control it. It was so big. I, like, or my temper or my passion or my lust, whatever it is, like, so big. I could. For the excuse of uncontrollable passion is in truth baseless. Look what he says. He's like, that excuse? That's not real. That's a, man, that's a, that's a, that's, that's a, that's a fairy tale from self-love. Oh, you think you have such a big passion that you can't control? That's not true. Why? How do we know it's not true? Maybe it is true. He says it's not true. How do I know this? Let's keep on reading. He bases it off of a, of a Kabbalistic idea. Given that his natural passion, where does that come from? This uncontrollable natural, comes from the animal soul, natural animal soul. But he was given a godly soul for the specific purpose of overpowering the natural soul. So what is this excuse? I have a strong natural soul. Bro, don't you know how this works? The bigger the animal soul, the bigger the godly soul in that specific area. So what do you mean? I had this huge, and this passion, this temper, this love, whatever it is, and I couldn't. You might have had that, but you also have that. Why are you only focusing on, which, on, on, on one side and not the other side? As we know, and maybe I'll take a half a step back just to, 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 to lay out the, the, the spiritual foundation of this concept. We each have two souls within us, Kabbalah teaches, a godly soul and an animal soul, or a higher, soul, higher self, lower self, a part of us that, that, that wants to only do the right thing and only want to do the godly thing, selfless part of self. And on the other side, the lower self is the animalistic, selfish, self-serving, natural. It's not necessarily evil, but it's just about me, 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 me. And so what he's saying here is a major truth. And, and this becomes the, the foundation of this, of this, of this, of the next, this last piece of, of what we're going to study today. And that is, God creates us in a way that is perfectly balanced. Imagine like, um, one of my kids, we were at a bowling alley. One of the bowling alleys that have the arcades, right? Like little Vegas for kids. It's like, all these shiny lights. It's crazy. Like those places. Wow. I get into it. I'm like, oh my gosh. Like, I'm like, guys, play this game. We're going to win big, big tickets, big money. I'm, if only I were joking. Anyway. So one of my kids, um, you know, and then you go to the prize shop, and oh, that's drama also. It's like you thought everyone was happy, and then they get to the, to the prize shop where they trade in their, 
They used to have tickets. Now everything is digital. But they trade in their tickets, whatever it is, their points for prizes. And that becomes a whole drama unto itself. Like, what are you going to choose? And do you have enough money? It's like, oh, my God, do you have enough points? Uh, it ends up in tears half the time, even though, like, it's all good, but it's just too, too powerful of an experience. Again, kind of like Vegas. So getting back to, so I've heard. So getting back to, um, to this story. So one of my kids got enough points, and he gets this balanced toy. It's like a bird, and it has like a beak, but you put it on your finger, and it balances it. It's incredibly, it's perfectly weighted to balance itself. It's the weirdest thing. You ever encounter something like this? You put it, it's like, it, the shape is, it's like got a beak and got a whole body behind it, and you're like, there's no way if I just put the beak on my finger, it's gonna work, and it, it's all, it almost feels like there's a gyroscope inside, but there's not. It's just perfectly weighted and balanced. You put it on your nose and move around, and it just, it just stays. It's the weirdest thing. It, like, it's, it's bizarre. It's perfectly balanced. God created us. Here's my point. Perfectly balanced. The animal soul and the godly soul are perfectly weighted and balanced to work against and with each other. So if a person has a very strong temper from the animal soul, a person has a very strong antidote to that temper within their godly soul, the power to overcome and to neutralize that. Which means that saying, my animal soul made me do it, is not an excuse. Because what about your godly soul? Of course you have an animal soul, but you were given a godly soul. So what, hap what happened with that? You were given the tools to overcome. What happened to the animal? What happened to the godly soul? Yeah. Right. Oh, so good. So identifying it is, is step number one. But identifying it in a way that we own it. Identifying saying, I know that this is me, and I know it's from my animal soul, and I know that I have the ability to overcome it, so let me work on that, as opposed to saying, oh, what can you do? I have such a strong passion inside of me. Sometimes I, sometimes I can overcome it, sometimes I can't, but you know, it's really so strong. He says, no, 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 don't give it more power than it actually has. That's the self-love talking. That's not truth talking. Right? Because what's true, what's true is that e, no matter how big that side is, you have an equally big other side to combat it. So this is what he says over here. And this will take us right to our, to our finale. But he was given a godly soul for the purpose, specific purpose of overpowering the natural soul. This almost positions the godly soul as only existing for the animal, which is crazy. Because you would think, well, the, the the godly soul exists, and then the animal soul kind of challenges it to prove its mettle and to, you know, to give us reward for pushing it. But here he says the other way. You have an animal soul, and the godly soul exists to be, allow you to combat the animal soul, which is, again, a, a bit of a twist on, on an old favorite, but nonetheless, I think both are true. The purpose, let's go. Oh, look at this. He says it right here. I don't even have to theorize. He says it right here. The purpose of subduing the natural soul is the sole reason in creating him. That's a powerful line. Yeah, why, why are we here? Everyone asks, why are we here? Why do we exist? Why life? And you know what he says here? The whole purpose of human beings is to push back against your natural soul with the strength that you were given that resides in your godly soul. That's the entire reason why you're here, why you and I are here. That was God's gift to us so that we can have autonomy, you know, that, that you know, we get you know, challenged by, by things and our anger 
but we overcome it. And then that's how we build our Yeah. Marnina's saying, I'm going to repeat it to, to everybody online. Marnina's saying that that's the gift that God has given us, is the challenge, but also the, the strength to overcome the challenge. And when we do so, that, that, that is our humanity. That's, that's, our, that's our nobility in our humanity, is to overcome that, is to overcome the natural vices that we have. And look what he says. Yeah. And, and that says it's above the animals. Above the animals. He says here it's even above the angels. Look what he says here. No, you're right, and, and above angels as well. There are, in fact, angels who serve God with love and joy, who are in a constant state of utter nullity. In other words, um, they, are, they feel like nothing in, his, in God's presence. So why, should bother, so, so why should God bother creating man? If God wanted spiritual beings, he had them angels. Why, why did he? Why us? Who us? What us? Right? What, did he, what was he missing? But for this, oh, but angels have no Yetzirah. Angels have no evil inclination to animal soul. There's nothing novel in their service of God. There's nothing creative. unique, nothing creative, nothing unique. There's no chidush. There's no, obviously, a perfect, pure, spiritual being is going to act perfect, pure, and spiritual. So what's the point? That's where we come in. For this reason, man was created with the Yetzirah and the Yetzirah, with an evil inclination and a good inclination. So that... For the purpose of that the Yetzir Tov, the good inclination, should overpower the Yetzir, the evil inclination. And thus, with this, man causes pleasure on high. This is what gives God pleasure, so to speak. Due to the novelty of his service, the creativity, the, the uniqueness of the work that we do, as is explained elsewhere. Let's see what that reference is, 235. Yeah, okay. Uh, okay, we'll save the footnote for later, for another time. So what's the point? Let's just understand how we got here. It started off by a person saying, I know I did wrong, and I know I need to fix it, and I'm fixing it, and I'm in a better place, but, you know, my passion was really strong. And him saying, you know what, hold on, that's a subtle form of shifting and deflecting, because yes, you had a strong passion, but yes, you have a strong godly soul. And you should know that's your entire purpose of being, is to use that strength that you have to overcome the weakness that you have. So now you're going to blame the weakness, what about focusing on the strength? In other words, acknowledge and say, I dropped the ball and not using the gifts that I have leveraged against the weakness that I have. So that, but own it. Don't say, I have such a strong weakness. That's shifting and deflecting. And this is why we're here, and this is why we're higher than angels, and this is why God loves us, and this is why God has pleasure from us, from what we do, because we have this ability to overpower the negative with the strength that we have on the positive side. So let's continue, and we'll take it straight to the end. The, um, when the natural soul is more gross, in other words, the more coarse, and gross means like um, materialistic, physical, more passionate, the natural soul is, and the natural soul, and the natural passion is more compelling. In other words, the more strength there is on that side, there is no question that the godly soul possesses unusually potent powers. In other words, if that's really strong, if a person has a really strong temper, really strong lust, really strong other you know, negative feelings, uh, or tr tr tendencies, there is no doubt, he says, there's no question that there is unusually potent powers on the godly side, like the bird that my Shalom, actually, the bar mitzvah boy got before his bar mitzvah, perfectly balanced, perfectly balanced and weighted. If it's exceptionally strong on one side, it's exceptionally strong on the other side. 
He, the person, is perfectly capable of controlling his natural desires. Man's burden never exceeds his strength. The challenge never exceeds the, the capability. As our sages say, the load is according to the camel. It's funny. We're all camels in this context. The load is according to the camel. God doesn't overburden the ability of us. Ketubot 67a. Since he has strong natural desires, no doubt, he has equally strong spiritual powers to use in overcoming his desires. Thus, any sense of it's not my fault, my powers were too, my, my, my passion was too strong, my animal soul is so such a raging animal, and my evil inclination is working overtime, all of that is fake news. I mean, it's true, but what's not true about it is that's only half the picture because the other half is the capabilities that we have to overcome. So instead of blaming that side, Acknowledge that we didn't utilize our gifts properly. And the point is not, by the way, none of this is to put us in a depression and say how bad we are, how bad. That's not, not the point at all. The point is to acknowledge, to own it, and to rise up. I started the class by talking about the power of tshuva, the power of the rebound. This is like one of the greatest gifts that we have. One of the greatest Jewish teachings, one of the greatest gifts that Moses in his uh, great leadership opened up that, this channel for us, the idea of personal redemption, that a rebound story. And let's not miss out on the opportunity. But we miss out on it either totally or partially when we point fingers. Why do we point fingers? Because of self-love. Because of the ego. Let go. Let go my ego. Let go, let go of the ego. Right? And allow ourselves to own it, acknowledge it, to take accountability and responsibility, and grow from the experience. Not to own it and become broken by it. To own it and grow from it. That's the goal. Next week, next week, if you thought today, hopefully, was, uh, was, was good, was, was interesting, compelling, just wait till next week, because next week, he asks a bombshell question, which is, who says that the godly soul is stronger than the animal soul? Who says? How do we know? Perfectly balanced doesn't seem like it. It seems like that side is stronger than the good side, and we're going to get to a Kabbalistic, a mystical, spiritual exposition of this, of how it is indeed that the godly soul is stronger than the natural soul. All right, that's it for today. Although, hold on, I just realized that I am traveling this weekend. I have a Shabbaton that I'm leading in Texas, Frisco, by my brother-in-law. He's known as the Frisco Yid. And um, the question is, Sunday morning... I don't think I'll be able to be back in time. So maybe we'll just do just, I, would, I don't want to take a, off another week because we just missed two. We missed two, I think, right? Two in a row? Yeah? Which I don't remember why exactly, but we did two in a row. We were off. Oh, I was in New York and then Bar Mitzvah, right. So I don't want to do, I don't want to do another one off. I think I would rather just do from Texas a Zoom class. And then I'll fly back after the class. So we'll miss the bagels next week, but at least we'll have class. I think that's what I would like. Hopefully you guys can join. All right, still, still pending. I'm just talking through some thoughts. Okay, that's it for today. Thank you for joining. By the way, by the way, if you'd like to join us for our online crew in person, we've got great bagels, lox and cream cheese. We have a few left. It's still not too late to, uh, to come by and grab some. Um, we're back this week with, we have a class tomorrow night, Hot Topics, Tuesday night, Outsmart Anti-Semitism, Wednesday, Torah Studies, and Thursday afternoon. afternoon, JLI, right? And other stuff. All right, check your local listings. Rabbi? Yaakov, yes. Um, is there, do you all have children there? I'm just curious. 
We had we had chalent yesterday. Yesterday we had two pots of chalent. We have regular and spicy. So you pro- yeah the chal- and the chalent was good yesterday. Oh my gosh, it was really good yesterday. So angels angels can't eat chalent and they can't uh, kvetch either. So why would God, if all they do is praise, uh, what purpose do they serve? That's a great question. Now the question is not on human beings because we know what human beings bring to the table. Now the question is what do angels bring? We're obviously very valuable. Yeah. So what do angels bring to the table? I don't know. I guess God wants someone to like be beautiful. Unconditional love. (laughs) Right. So angels are really, in Hebrew, malach, malachim, could either mean angels or messengers. So what Donna's saying is true is that angels are primarily messengers to achieve something like pure emanations of spiritual energy, like packets of, inf- of spiritual information that are carrying, kind of, you know, that are moving from one space to another. But in that process, they're just pure transmissions um, of light. So on that level, they're pure and don't have that choice to like not do the mission because they're just programmed that way. So like they're like a part of God, but then there's also many, many, many that are uh, direct, uh, I guess, uh, the spiritual part of ourselves. Those are called angels. So everything on earth has that. Right. Well, we can create angels. Like when we pray, we create an angel. But what that means, according to my understanding, is that the prayers that we direct toward God so the movement from below to above, that movement of energy above, right, that is being couriered, if you will, like it moves upward and that process is carried by angels, so to speak. So we create angels when we pray, but it's really about the movement. It's about a flow of energy. Every flow of energy is kind of like, has that angel, like, like Jacob's ladder, like the, the angels up and the angels down, you know, that the packets of, of data up and down, the spiritual energy. That's my understanding. Marnie. So that, that's, there's a whole world, right? Yeah. World. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So the angels set an example of what to aspire to. Or, yeah. So, so on, a, on a pure level, Marnie yeah. is saying the angels are setting uh, an example of what we can aspire to. It's kind of like the role of a tzaddik. That God, God, want, God clearly likes the struggle. When I say likes the struggle, I don't mean this sadistically, but like God... There's power, there's potency, there's light in the process of fighting against the challenge and overcoming, or, or at least moment to moment overcoming. So why then a tzaddik? Why then a perfectly righteous person? To be a role model. To like, so this is, like, this is the ideal. Not that we're going to get there, but this is at least what we're striving for. Like uh, there was a friend of... Friend, uh, so my, my son Shalom, who had his bar mitzvah last Shabbos, one of his classmates had a bar mitzvah this Shabbos, and last night they had this whole thing with a party bus, whatever, and then Top Golf. You know what Top Golf is? It's like this. They have a few locations around Atlanta, the Midtown Top Golf. So I went to pick him up because he wasn't into the party bus. I just picked, I just we dropped him off and picked him up directly from there. He's into Top Golf. So I decided, you know, let me take, a, let me take a hack at it. I, I don't even know what my, what my point is, other than I had a, a brilliant drive. It like was like the best drive of my life. It was, uh, but what's the point? The point is, oh, in golf, right? For a golfer like me, the flag is just a suggestion in the general direction where to go. Not that I'm ever going to get it there, but it's kind of like, that's where we're, like the tzaddik. The tzaddik is like, that's perfection. Me, I'm in the rough, I'm in the sand, I'm in the water. 
Not, 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 I'm never going to get there. <laughs> at least not, at least not in, the, in, in single digit shots. But like, you know, it's, it's showing us the direction. That's a tzaddik. That's an angel. All right. It's great to see you guys. We'll see you soon. Oh, don't forget also, I forgot to mention, RCS, Rosh Chodesh Society, next Monday night. So stay tuned for more details. We're going to send out more information tomorrow night, uh, tomorrow, in an email. Very powerful series on the rituals of Judaism, Jewish ritual and their spiritual meaning. A course for women, by women, taught by Mrs. Schusterman and my wife, Leah. And we're going to reveal more information about that tomorrow. Yes, yes. But the good news is that's upstairs. This is downstairs. We got the news about Chabad. We have plenty of space and also online space. So, all right, stay tuned for that. All right, have a wonderful day. And, oh, can't end without saying, go Braves. Right? Go Braves. All right. See ya. Take care. Is there like a companion that opens?